0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Enablement Amplified. I'm your host, Fiona Simpson. Welcome to another episode of Enablement Amplified. My guest today is Brian Clancy. Hey, Brian, great to have you on. Tell us a little about yourself.
1: That's great to be here. Thank you so much. I am a global uh, head of revenue enablement here at Sinkley in, uh, in Dublin, Ireland, and I am a cultural anthropologist. I studied at the University of California in Berkeley, and then I'm finishing my Ph.D. next year in Queens University, Belfast. So I am somewhat would say an expert in culture and I study non-exotic tribes like enablers.
0: I love that. My mom also happens to be an anthropologist by, by training. So between the California connection, the Ireland connection and then the anthropology Connection, I am really, really excited to chat with you today because looking at anything enablement through a culture lens, anthropology lens sounds really kind of fascinating. So tell us the what if question that you've brought to the podcast today.
1: What if we looked at revenue enablement through the cultural lens, right? And I think there it is. (laughs) that's what it is, right? I think that we really have an opportunity to sort of take a step back and look at sort of what we're doing. And it makes me think of, like, you know, when's the documentary coming out about the right? Because <laughs> we know the profile of, like, SaaS sales people or, or, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. But where are we going to see the people who, like, make these professionals thrive? And oh how gosh, are they really sort of... It. Wouldn't it be a cool movie?
0: Yeah, I, I would, I would want to do a documentary about that if I knew anything about making documentaries. That sounds awesome. Well, so when you say the looking at enablement through the culture per cultural perspective. What do you mean by that? Tell us a little bit about what culture framework is, what anthropology is. I'm sure it's a little academic for some of our listeners. So tell us a little bit more what you mean by that.
1: Yeah, well, I was a professor of anthropology in South America for eight years. So I know how it is to sort of take academic ease and try and make it more broad and open for students to understand. So basically, anthropology is the study of human behavior. We look at groups, typically people sort of said, hey tribes and what tribes do and what are their sort of behaviors. I've always explained it to my students in thinking about sort of three major aspects of culture that build up cultural framework that I approach most of my research when it comes to looking at non-exotic tribes. So I describe non-exotic tribes as we don't live in huts, you know, people are not sort of looking at indigenous groups and, you know, far-flung places that you say, oh, wow, I wonder what people are like there, right? No, I'm talking about people like us looking in a mirror and sort of saying, hey, what's the tribe of enablers look like? What does the trial of software as a solution sellers look like? And so how would we identify those key cultural tenets or traits that we could start to say, oh, this is what I mean when I think about culture. And this is the kind of framework I would use when I'm thinking about, hey, how would I look at this from the beginning? to the end, to the actions. And so I have a very simple sort of three-word process that I unpack for my students. So hopefully you don't feel too overwhelmed by the academic sort of nature of my uh, anthropological stance, but I love talking about anthropology and certainly apply it to every group that I work with.
0: I love that. And, and I think that idea of non-exotic tribes is so interesting because we have, we all are part of tribes, right? If we're part of a religious group or a sports team following um, you and I have already talked about our love of fo- the actual football thank you everyone in the US not soccer anyway um, but you know right we think of all of these groups that we're a part of and what are the behaviors or thinking that's similar in those groups versus a different group and I, I think this is such a good lens to look at an enablement because we can identify traits about ourselves and then i wonder also if we can start to think about the other tribes like you mentioned that we interact with right our sellers what are their traits and qualities what are their behaviors and things like that so i think this will really help us like you said take a step back and think about our groups but you mentioned the framework that you use and i and you've told me a little bit about it I do think that it's very digestible and easy to follow. So let's dive into the framework a little bit and then we can apply it to some of the areas of enablement and and how this kind of plays out.
1: Yeah, very cool. I mean, I've been studying non exotic tribes for about 20 years now. And where I sort of looked at what behavioral tenets we could look at when we're studying groups. So you've got a group of people, you want to kind of understand what they're doing, where they're at with their behaviors and what can you observe. In anthropology, we use the methodology of participant observation. Enablers really should embrace participant observation because the best kind of enablement happens when you observe gaps in sort of your sales teams and you can say, hmm, I wonder why we're approaching customers this way or why are we selling features, not value, thinking about value selling and how do we sort of think about these different features? So I think that methodology that we use in that topology is extremely adaptable for the enablement world and I think it's a very key aspect of sort of what i've done in my career but also i want to share that with everybody here because you can think about it in a very simple three-part way and you know we love things in three steve jobs really (laughs) he set the tone (laughs) (laughs)
0: i'll
1: write things and i'll
0: have two things and i'm like oh i need a third thing it happens to me all the time
1: What's, what's the third what's the third right yeah I think, you know, sellers love two-by-two two matrices, enablers love threes, right? So we can mm-hmm. think about those numbers of threes and fours. But this framework really was developed in sort of conjunction with many, many hours of, of students and classes and thinking about how they would approach non-exotic tribes or what they would do for anthropological investigation. So I, I distill culture down into three major tenets, which is it's things that we say, right? So the mm-hmm. things that we say, the words that we use, the things that come out of our mouth, that then turns to action. So those are the things that we do. So, hey, I'm gonna follow up with you. I'd like to do this, you know, and then we actually do those things. So those actions become what we like to talk about, muscle memory, it's importing information into Salesforce or, you know, following up with pipe generation. Those are the actions that we really wanna look at. So what we say, what we do, and then the brass ring, if we talk about that Mm Kirkpatrick model of sort of enablement, like, do we have an effect on ROI, right? The brass ring to the cultural sort of framework is what we believe. So
0: Mm -hmm. what we say,
1: what we do, and what we believe. And if we're really talking about cultural impact, we've got to talk about belief systems and how those belief systems form.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That if, for example, we, I'm just thinking of a group of folks, let's say we're working with enterprise sellers and maybe some of them are new. And we say, these are the things that you say to an executive when you're in a sales conversation. These are the things that you do. And this is what you are going to eventually believe is true about yourself as a seller, about the way this process works. It makes sense that when you say something enough and then you do it enough, then you start to believe that that is how that thing works or that is how you should respond to something. You start to believe that what you've been taught or what you've learned is the the way to do it or the way to think about it. This is yeah. so fascinating to me. I feel like we could spend hours, but the good news is we're only going to be, we're not going to keep people here forever. This is not like Dr. Brian's three-hour lecture, I promise everyone. So we've got this framework, right, of of say, do, believe. How does that apply to, maybe let's talk about learning programs, because I think that's a very clear way that that has a touch directly for enablement. How do we apply this say, do, believe framework to learning programs in the enablement world?
1: I think it's a great question because where we sort of think about traditional models, if we say, okay, hey, you know, we're in this period where I love my LMS and I'm really thinking about how, you know, these different LMSs are going to sort of organize content and they're gonna make it so interactive and it's gonna be great and stellars are not engaged. <laughs> what do I do now? right? What do I do? Right. This, this <laughs> system is amazing. Like I won't name any names, you know, but these are incredible programs that facilitate actions and reminders and notifications. And, hey, it's a one-stop shop. Well, I've been a teacher for many years, and I think that, you know, plenty of books in the library, but we've got to really think about how we're curating that work and how we're thinking about not just the content, but also the delivery. And so when I think this is most applicable is we say a lot of things as enablers, hey, if we could just get some micro learning in there, if we could just get, you know, some digital certification and badges and really start rewarding people, that's all really interesting. And that narrative is really cool, right? Because that's mm-hmm. part of what we're doing. But then how does that translate to actions? So if we have an LMS that's incredible and all the learning is there and we've built all this really cool content, how come people aren't engaged? Well, they don't have the muscle memory, right? So mm-hmm. when behavior becomes habitual, Right. Think of like brushing mm. your teeth. Right. Nobody has to remind you to brush your teeth. Well, some kids. Unless right? you're
0: five.
1: <laughs> Unless you're five. Yeah. Or sometimes because 15, you're still
0: building four. your muscle memory. Right, exactly. You're
1: still building your muscle memory. But brushing your teeth is a great example of sort of something you do almost unconsciously. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe me, tomorrow morning when you're about to brush your teeth, <laughs> switch hands. So if you brush oh. your teeth with your right hand, switch your hands to your left hand and feel the difference of what it is. Do something you do every single day, but the action is different. So what we say we're going to do, brushing our teeth, but what we actually did is we switched our hand to our left or from our right to our left. And all of a sudden it's a little bit different. I think enablers have to think about learning that way, right? Because we have to think that this is a switch up of hands. I know I'm supposed to learn these things. I know I'm supposed to consume this content, but it's not part of my muscle memory. It's not part of what I do in my day to day. And so that's where you can start to say, okay, I believe in hygiene. I brush my teeth twice a day. How often do you floss? And that's where I move (laughs) into the kind of belief system, right? If you believe in hygiene, you probably brush your teeth. If you believe in really sort of keeping your teeth clean, how often do you floss? Twice a day, once a week. Right. And this sort of changes (laughs) how we look at simple things in this very simple format.
0: Yeah, I could even apply that to the actual things that our sellers are executing on. Right. If I know as a seller that I need to ask discovery questions and I'm used to really crappy ones that don't get me very far because they're all I know. It's going to take that new muscle memory of not just being told, hey, here are some better discovery questions to ask, but actually doing them until I start to believe after I've done those better discovery questions, hey, this actually gets me better results and this helps me uncover my buyer's pain faster and all of those different things. So I could see how just the simple framework applies at so many different stages. For us as enablers, how are we applying this to the way that we're delivering content for our sellers, how are they taking that content and actually practicing until they believe? Yep. And then even a step further back, like, and this kind of, I think, brings us back to the idea of the culture. What is the culture of our sales organization, our revenue organization as a whole? What does this organization altogether say, do, and believe? This is so fascinating because yeah. it's micro and macro at the same time. And that makes me really happy.
1: <laughs> and, uh, and that's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly the anthropological approach, right? So when you're thinking about the macro and sort of, hey, we know about humans, right? We're human. So we know what humans do, right? But then we don't know what humans do on a day-to-day individual habit. So when ritual, right? sort of, you know, what rituals we have, like brushing our teeth, when ritual becomes habitual, That's Mm. when it becomes part of your belief system. And so we have to think about this stuff that, hey, it's almost unconscious, right? So wake up in the morning, turn my alarm clock off and maybe check my email. That's a habitual behavior that is almost part of your belief system. You think it's important to check the weather or the news or your email first thing in the morning. That's part of your belief system, Right. And then when someone says, actually that's not beneficial for you. You're inheriting sort of the stress of the day or the woes of the world. And you're hitting hitting dopamine spikes and looking at all the neurological sort of studies. You're not interacting with your partner
0: who's right there and they're feeling left out. You know, all those other things that, yeah. Then you start to believe, oh, maybe this isn't good for me. And maybe I shouldn't be doing this every morning
1: when I wake up. And And challenging beliefs is where our tribe, enablers, has to be very vigilant. Because we can't just say, oh, this is how we've always done it. I'm going to give you a course. I'm going to give you some follow-up learning. And then I'm going to facilitate a live session. Done. Implemented, right? No, we've got to really think <laughs> about it. Where are the dissenters? And why are they dissenting? What's part of their system of belief? It says, I don't need this. I've been an enterprise seller for 25 years. What are you going to tell me? I don't know how to be in a boardroom. No, but actually what I'd like to understand is what have you observed? What's your sort of interaction with the people that are not speaking, with the people that are in the room? And this is where I think diversity and inclusion becomes huge, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you thinking in a way that you haven't thought before? Well, probably not if you're a profile person who's not inclusive who doesn't let you know other people speak, who doesn't pronounce people's names with the right pronouns, who excludes that kind of information from who you are. You're missing a trip and your mm-hmm. belief system is limiting from unlocking potential deals and potential greater sales.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and that could apply in so many different facets, right? If someone is so set in their ways about the way that they approach their sales process, I agree 120,000%, they're missing something because the world around us is changing, businesses are changing, and if you're if you're still trying to sell the same way you sold 20 years ago, it's not going to work and you have to adapt. And I love that framework of challenging belief systems. I had a really good trainer that I've worked with before says people have a really hard time arguing with their own data. And I think that that is such a helpful tool when we're trying to get someone to change their belief system, because you could say to a seller, hey, look, you have been keenly focused only on, let's just say you sell a marketing related tool. You've only been focused on talking to the CMOs in this organization. And it looks like your deal time has lengthened over the last 12 months. What if you were able to incorporate some other people into the conversation besides the CMO, and you saw a trend that your deal time went back to what it was before, Would you argue with that, right? And so you help people challenge their beliefs by pointing to their own data or pointing to their own information. And I think that framework really helps to drive that behavior change. I love it. Absolutely.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, I I think that's so relevant in so many of the deal cycles, right? So like where I can think about when sellers, especially at the enterprise level, I say to them, you know, how's your relationship with procurement? And they're like, oh yeah. (laughs) I'm good. I know who that person Liars. Is they are liars. Yeah. If
0: anyone has a good relationship with procurement and SaaS sales, they are full of it.
1: <laughs> and, and that's where I doubled down on relationships, right? So when people talk about, hey, you know, sales is relationships. we got to get into different relationships. We have got to understand. They're t- typically talking about their champion or their sponsor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in a particular deal that I was doing in, when I used to work at LinkedIn, it was the largest deal we were working on in learning and it was $1.4 million of software. It was a big deal. It was gonna be the biggest at the time. And it was, you know, with an entity in Colombia that we were sort of working with, it was a government kind of education agency. And as I was a seller and sort of thinking about, hey, you know, how does anthropology sort of apply to selling and how can we sort of think about relationships? And I remember the CEO sort of saying, oh, this is Martha, she's in procurement. And I was like, oh, okay, what's procurement? I had no idea, like a typical seller, right? And. <laughs> And she was sort of like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. And, you know, I said, oh, nice to meet you, too. And then after a few days of sort of understanding the kind of whole network and who was in charge and what kind of people made decisions, the name that kept coming back up. And people were like, oh, you know, she really has sort of a big decision within this kind of decision making mm-hmm. tree. And I said, oh, OK, that's interesting. So I went over to market desk and I said, hey, are, are you free for lunch? I'd love to go to lunch with you and just understand how does it work? You know, what do you guys do when it comes to purchasing and how do these contracts sort of boil down? At the end of the deal, which we closed in four months, was one of the fastest enterprise cycles that make had ever seen. Holy and cow. I remember going up to Martha's desk with the CEO at the time, and she came up to me, again, it was in Colombia, I speak Spanish, so she was like, Brian Cito, right, which okay. means little Brian, right, and
0: that's a term of endearment. Like that's that's a close connection. You don't use that phrase in Spanish, at least, without there being a close connection.
1: And I mean, I'm I'm six foot. I'm two hundred fifty <laughs> pounds. I'm anything. You are not a Cito
0: live. of anything. I'm not a Cito <laughs> in any space.
1: Of yeah. So when the head of the procurement came up and was like, "Hey, little Brian, you know, I've got something for you. It's a signed contract. That was December 23rd right, of the financial year. And she had got it done before the close of, you know, Christmas break and everything. Because I had established a relationship with procurement that was a real relationship, not a fictitious part of the map that I had drawn out with, you know, sort of who my key stakeholders. So I think that's a very important point that you could just make, is that when you look at things from your always traditional perspective, yeah, yeah, I know procurement, that's fine. But when you look at it from another perspective and say, what does that mean? It's no procurement. It means that Markham will call you little Brian when it comes down to getting the contract signed, mm-hmm. And so that makes the difference in how we need to influence the culture of sales.
0: That is fascinating. So thinking about changing beliefs or, or things that you've done for a long time, and I'm very curious to hear this from you. How did you move from the academic world and teaching for so long? How did you move? tribes, let's call it, from the tribe of academia to the tribe of of sales and sales enablement, because I think that's going to illuminate a bit about what you've brought over with you and the moves that you've made and the way you've brought this framework into your work now in, in sales and sales enablement. So tell us a little bit about how you got there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the journey was fantastic, right, because, you know, LinkedIn came to me and sort of said, hey. We need kind of a cultural expert to understand this deal we're working on with Chile. Now, at the time, LinkedIn and me is headquartered here in Ireland, and they were sort of looking at, you know, who could kind of help us unstick this deal? That deal was a $20 million deal, and it was one of the largest deals that they had ever worked on uh, for a global clients program. And so a friend of mine who worked there sort of said, hey, you know what? There's this cultural anthropologist who lives in Ireland who lived in Chile. Like, you should probably just give them a call and sort of say, hey, you know, help us understand so I was at a rugby game in Northern Ireland, <laughs> uh, and the phone rings, and it's like, "Hey, this is me from LinkedIn. I just had a couple of questions for you about LinkedIn. Are you free?" And I was like, "Oh, okay. I'll go into the toilet and just sort of, you know, answer these phone calls. <laughs> that's not weird, right?"
0: Totally normal. But, just step out of a rugby match to go absolutely. into the loo and, and have a chit chat about LinkedIn.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> no what, pressure. That's what you do. That's what you do. Or really, as you would say, "When LinkedIn calls, you answer them." Right. The way that sorts. Of, sort of unfolded was they were like, okay, how would you perceive this percent, You know, this situation that we're stuck in? And I said, I think you've got this blocker, you've got this problem, and this is one of the issues you face culturally. She was like, but how could you possibly know that? Like, I've been working on this deal for six months. I'm just telling you in sort of six minutes, the summary. She said, that's exactly where we're at. And I said, well, it's cultural context. I know what you're talking about. And also I understand what they're trying to see you know, with you, the potential, but also with them, the risk, right? So she said, look, would you consider kind of coming on board? We can't hire you as a consultant because we don't do that, but would you, like, help us sell this deal? And I was like, and become, what, a salesperson? And she was like, <laughs> yeah. And
0: I, <laughs> you were like, wait, so what?
1: <laughs> I was like, what, what does that mean, right? And so it was really interesting because... Everyone in tech knows that the hardest thing in tech is to get past all these interviews, right? You know, just getting in is much more difficult than your actual job. Go through panels, you go through the And I got to tell you, and everybody listening, I bombed every stage of the panels. I didn't know what a star methodology was. I didn't know how to sort of frame any situations. It was a mess, right? Like I literally blew everything completely. And yet they said, look, we're not going to find another person with this cultural capital and we need to unstick this deal. Let's take a chance on this guy and hopefully he's teachable with a growth mindset and we can teach him sales because the other aspects, he's exactly like whispering, presence, he got that with buying there, right? <laughs> and that's how I got into SaaS sales, right? So it was a very interesting transition from having virtually no knowledge to just having to be the top researcher, the top learner the top growth mindset and LinkedIn really rewards that kind of learning mentality. So when I got in there, it's just absorb, absorb, absorb. And that's how I started to study the not exotic tribe of software solution sellers.
0: Talk about trial by fire too. Wow, that that is maybe one of the most interesting stories of how someone got into SaaS software selling I've ever heard in my life. But it makes sense because I think And just taking it back to tribes and culture a little bit, when we have someone with a completely outside perspective, a completely different set of skills that comes in and becomes a part of our tribe, not only did they absorb as you did at LinkedIn, right? You absorbed so much of the culture of LinkedIn and the culture of the sellers there and everything else, but I'm sure we know clearly, obviously you brought in your own Beliefs and values and skill set and everything else. So, this all feels so full circle to me because it just feels like this is how we do well as a group of people. Whether we are the enablers ourselves and our tribe, are we challenging our own beliefs? Are we bringing in new perspectives? Are we building a culture in our team? even if it's a team of one who are sort of the uh, ancillary people, right? The the leaders we work with and our stakeholders. But then also, as we look at the tribe that we have influence over our sellers, how are we bringing outside perspective, seeing those gaps and everything else? I just love that this thread is just like so clear through everything that we're speaking through. Yeah. So one other thing that I want to talk about as we think about those behavior changes, those new pieces of culture, how we kind of adapt as our tribe grows and changes. There's this idea of culture rules. It means when culture is ruling our environment versus when it's not. Talk to us a little bit about what that looks like because I think we've all been in organizations that have an absence of culture. So we know what the pain of that can be, but tell us a little bit about sort of the positive of when we lead with culture.
1: I mean, I think the best example for all of us as enablers, when we're thinking about joining a new organization or trying to understand, it, they're going to say a lot of things and they might do a few things, but what do they really believe, right? And so when you think about how you're going to approach a new organization or where you're going to be fitting in, in this organization, culture is so important, Like right? famous quote, culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? <laughs> so strategy is super important, but culture eats for breakfast. And that really idea of, you know, where culture sits and how that culture sort of dominates. Reed Hastings talks about in his book, The No Rules Rules, right? So what Netflix did and how they sort of said, hey, we're going to have open vacation. We're going to have all these different things. Amazing cultural tenants, zero adoption, right? People didn't do any of the stuff that they put on paper. Their deck was super popular. Facilitated, you know, sent it out this cultural blueprint. They didn't see any change in Netflix until Reed and his senior leadership team started to behave in the way that they had laid out with these no rules, right? They got onto the do. And eventually, as those dues became habits, people started to believe in it, right? People really started to say, oh, this is a great place to work. Whoa, look what we're doing here. So where I see that is so fundamental. For the success of an organization is when the rubber hits the road. When there's headwinds, when sellers aren't selling, that's when culture steps in and either eats your breakfast or completely you. right? Because mm-hmm. if you don't have cultural tenets that you don't believe what you're doing here, the mission, vision, purpose, but that you actually live and breathe, sellers can't sell and they can't stick around when the going gets tough. So I see that as really so fundamental to like organizations that have a cultural sort of blueprint, but organizations who believe that those are the foundations of the organization. Those are the ones that can endure the challenging times when we're facing, when we're facing the sellers.
0: Absolutely. I, I'll, I'll use that to illustrate two different organizations that I've previously worked with. One of them, during your interview, your first day. Every day after that, across the office, like physical posters and pieces of paper framed on everyone's desk had the company values. You heard about it from the second you walked in the door of that company, and that was absolutely a culture that was at the believe level. I worked there eight years ago, I wanna say, and I can still recite all nine of the company values because not only were they things that were around us like we visually were reading them all the time but we talked about them constantly we lived them we would have conversations with each other that said hey i'm pointing to this value on the wall literally right there i think i actually still have them framed somewhere in my house and like i said it was like eight years ago and when i left the company i pointed to some of the company values and i said the I have to keep living by these values you've instilled in me and the right thing for me to do because of those values you've taught me is to move on. On the flip side, another organization that I worked for, first of all, when I started, I asked, what are your company values? And they said, well, it's something our HR yeah. team is working on. And I was like, you guys have been in business for like 15 years and like, you don't have that written down yet. Interesting." And then they came up with some and they had made a big announcement and kind of to your point about the the Reed Hastings story, they made this big hoopla about them. You know, company town halls every quarter, they would give someone an award for this value or that value. But that was it. And it died after a year. I don't think anybody who works at that company today would even know what they were because they didn't get to the do and they certainly didn't get to the believe state. And so whether that's at an organization as a whole or even within a sales organization, I feel like it, it, it's one or the other. There's not really an in-between. You're, you either are at the believe stage of the culture of your team, your organization, or you shouldn't have even bothered in the first place.
1: And I think that's how we can look at it from an enablement perspective, right? It's like, if we say, look at look at anthropology and look at the cultural aspects of enablement, well, using that framework, you can say, hey, this I can recognize these tenets to say, did they say that? Did they do it? Are they believing this? Right? And so that's where I think the purpose of this podcast is to amplify that understanding. It's to really say, hey, what is the framework? How do I recognize this stuff like an anthropologist? Right? And there's an amazing journalist for the Financial Times. Her name is Jillian Tett. She's in the UK. She worked at, at, at London School of Economics. She teaches at different universities. I think she's just been named provost or something. Now I'm getting a bit nerdy with my academic,
0: <laughs> right? Once an academic, but, always an academic, right, Brian?
1: Absolutely. But she wrote a very accessible book called Anthrovision. And really, it's this incredible insight to how she looked at anthropology and how she is an editor for Financial Times, which is comes in pink paper. if You've never seen it in the UK, right? If you've Parents ever been ocean. on an
0: international flight and you walk through business class, you will see someone on that flight. I don't care where it's from, but if you are on an international flight, you will see a pink newspaper in somebody's hand every time.
1: And what's interesting about that tribute, right, is that we think that sort of that nobody's really studying it in, in detail. But you remember that period where where sort of business people were wearing salmon shirts, the pink, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. like, right? They think it's an association with that, that, you know, if I wore salmon, that the salmon paper, you know, people would associate me with financial knowledge. And so therefore, I would exert the outside of the sort of Wall Street white shirt, you know, jacket, tie, this move to, well, a progressive financial person wears pink. Interesting. For a stage, right? So.
0: Oh, and talk about trying to be part of a tribe. And again, I'm going to contain myself.
1: (laughs) So that's what I'm saying is that the amplification of a cultural perspective in enablement really allows you to say, oh, I see that. Oh, I think about that application. And where I challenge everyone who's listening and people that are thinking about this is, are you reading your own data? Are you really looking at this from a different perspective? Or are you just consuming this learning content that we're sharing with you today, but you're not changing your mind? And so that's the challenge is like, hey, look for the pink shirts, look for the traits that really change your perspective on things. And that's a way to approach your next enablement initiative.
0: I think this is so fascinating and and we could stay here and talk about it all day. I will absolutely be linking Jillian Tet and Reed Hastings in the show notes, but Uh, Just to kind of wrap us up here, as we do on every episode of Enablement Amplified, I would love to ask how we can amplify you, Brian, and your work, what you're up to, maybe any projects that you're working on. I know you're already gonna send me a copy of your dissertation, but that's just because I'm a nerd. But beyond the dissertation, which I'm sure is keeping you up at night, what else are you working on that we can amplify?
1: I think where the conversation is really interesting in Enablement is how are we being inclusive, right? Where are we sort of approaching this new conversation, neurodiversity, mm-hmm. right? So the traditional learner, as we talked about, it's from the top of the podcast. Is well, we gotta throw the old playbook out because how we learned before is not necessarily the right default, right? And sort of cultural bias, you know, unconscious bias, all these things that we've really understood in the last sort of decade. Well, how are we applying that to me? And I think think like you know someone who has neurodiversity, think about things from a different prism, right? So dyslexic way of thinking when it comes to my own behavior and, and my own dyslexia, you know, how can you write read books when you have dyslexia? Well, because I perceive things in a different way. So maybe I read faster because I'm skimming, but it's unconscious to me. And it makes sense in the way that I'm using my dyslexia as a superpower. So I think where we have to think about that is how inclusive are our meetings? How inclusive are our initiatives and where are we really thinking about what shoe fits? Well, the best kind of shoe is the one that the people want to wear. So stop trying to fit everybody's foot into your shoe and really think, Hey, you want to show up to this meeting in Crocs? You want to wear high heels? You want to wear sneakers? (laughs) We've got to be more open to the way that we're including people. And one of the ways I think about that is if you're not a first language speaker, you need to recognize that enablement, Hey, if English isn't your first language, maybe you're not going to process this information in real time. You know, culturally in the United States, people say content and then people come up with really good questions almost immediately. That's because you're conditioned to sort of ask and answer questions all through your educational experience. So Mm -hmm. teacher asks a question, everybody raises their hand, right? Mm -hmm. In other societies, nobody raises their hand. So that kind of exchange where people are not interacting, they're not typing in the chat, they're not responding in real time that could be a cultural difference that simply they can't process everything in real time in a second language. So I always like to include that caveat in my native sessions hey, if French is your first language and this presentation, find it challenging, don't worry, you're gonna get the notes and you have the opportunity to ask questions later in association with the content I just presented, maybe because you need to translate this. Maybe I need to translate your email that you send me in French and I'm open to that because the tools were available for us to do those things in real time. So I think that kind of approach to understanding cultural paradigms, to really thinking about how you make a more inclusive environment, that's the brave space that we talk about when we talk about sort of psychological safety and how people need to feel included. Be a container to the fact you got new tools out there. Just let people approach it from a different perspective and keep them engaged in the language that's important to them or the neurodiverse terms they need.
0: I I love that so much because I think it asks us as enablers to challenge our own beliefs about how people learn first and foremost. And number two, if we think about this tribe, the tribe needs to include everyone, right? We can't make sub tribes in our tribe. That's going to be defeating the the purpose of what we do. And so I I think it is so, so important that we challenge ourselves. We have to lead that effort um, because we're the ones that have that decision-making power. So I think that's really, really important. And I think amplifying that work is top tier. In addition to that, who else out there can we amplify? I love to kind of pay it forward. So tell us about someone in your world who's doing something cool and interesting and and how we can amplify them. And of course, I'll always put that information in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, I, I met this documentary filmmaker named Greg Framholtz and what he was studying within his thesis was sort of how podcasts have expanded beyond listenership and now have physical gatherings where the community comes together and they problem solve in real time. My that's desire how all the is-
0: murderers are ever going to be solved for the rest of forever. Hello. <laughs> so
1: I think that's such a great example because everybody is sort of these sleuth these groups that are sort of solving crimes. So Greg, what he really sort of looked at was a fascinating sort of understanding. Of the tribes that were created, In the physical space, when they came Mm -hmm. together, these salutes were so strong. They had Mm -hmm. such cultural tenets out of a podcast. Mm -hmm. So what was the interesting thing about that? And he's made an incredible documentary about that, you know, where it's just looking at where these things start to come alive. And how do we identify groups that once seemed almost impossible, thoroughly? come together in a physical way and form this tribe that are solving crimes, creating new enablement opportunities, and hopefully really being an environment of inclusion and not exclusion.
0: And maybe we can get Greg to do a documentary about enablement. (laughs) His work sounds fascinating. I'll definitely dig into that a little bit and put some links in the show notes. Well, Brian, I want to say thank you so much for the time. This has been fascinating. I feel like we're going to need to have a virtual beer or two sometime and just talk about all the other nerdy things we could get into. And I know for me personally, I am really going to start examining my own beliefs as an enabler and and start to challenge those and help my team do the same thing. So any parting words?
1: I think just keep looking at enablement from that perspective. What do we say? What do we do? What do you believe? And if you can sort of change the beliefs of your team, you're going to help salespeople thrive.
0: Thanks so much for being here, Brian.
1: Thank you, Fiona. Have a great day.
0: Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, I'm your host, Fiona Simpson. Take care.